Okay, welcome everyone to this edition of Surety Today. My name is Mike Stover, and I'm a partner with the uh, Surety Law Group here at Wright Constable Skeen in Baltimore, Maryland. Today I'm joined once again by my partner, Mr. George Backrack. As you know, Surety Today is designed to keep the busy claims professional up to date and informed on surety industry issues wherever you are. If you have a phone, you can call in. If you missed a presentation, you can listen to a recording at three different locations, our website at wcslaw.com, as a podcast at podbean.com, search for Surety Today, or on our microsite, which is suretytoday.net. That's all one word in lower case. The program is offered only to in-house claims professionals, and we appreciate your support and ask that you pass along our contact information to any colleagues who you think may be interested in calling in. If you have any suggestions for topics or improvements, please let us know. If you have any technical issues, contact Jeannie Hyatt at jhyatt, H-Y-A-T-T, at wcslaw.com. We've muted the line during the presentation to avoid any background noise, and we will unmute the line at the end for any questions. This will be the third time that we've done a surety case law up-to-date on surety today since we started back in May 2016. The last time was February 2017, so it's been about a year. We've gone back to June of 2017 and looked at the case summaries prepared by the SFAA from June through about mid-January of, of this year, and we selected some cases of interest to discuss with you today. Of course, we're limited by time and the number of cases we can talk about, and there were some very interesting cases that came out since June that we will not talk about today because they've been discussed in previous Surety Today presentations, such as those decisions on the False Claims Act and the surety. Uh, we also weed out cases that are more procedural in nature or that turn on trial or burden of proof issues as those are more germane to outside counsel. We try to focus on cases that have some practical use and, and or application for the claims handler. Uh, I'm always surprised when we do this process by the number of cases that are generated in that seven to eight month time frame. And George and I, you know, we go through and uh, and we look at this, the entire list, we read all of the blurbs, and then we sit down and talk about which ones we thought were interesting, and then we pick which ones we're going to talk about today. So it's, it's quite a process. But today we're going to discuss cases dealing with the bankruptcy issues, with waiver of Miller Act rights, uh, surety versus the bank, and surety rights to contract funds in bankruptcy. So without further ado, whatever ado is, I'm going to turn it over to George. The three cases that I will present today all relate back to prior presentations that Mike and I have given over the last year addressing a number of issues and concepts. I will quickly summarize those presentations during my discussion today of the three cases, putting those issues and concepts into a factual and practical context based upon the circumstances of each case. The first case concerns the surety subrogation rights and claims against the principal debtor, the American Southern versus DLM case. And all of these case citations will be available when we post the transcript of this presentation. Uh, last month on January 8th, Mike and I presented a Surety Today program entitled Bankruptcy, the Surety's Proof of Claim. While this case is not a proof of claim case, it does show the strength of the surety subrogation rights to the post-petition assumption of executory contract rights of an obligee and how the surety may seek reimbursement for its surety bond losses from a debtor who previously discharged the surety's indemnity agreement reimbursement rights. Now, Mike and I have not discussed executory contracts under the bankruptcy code uh, in a presentation yet, 
However, we have discussed the surety subrogation rights to another entity's post-petition claim for administrative expenses. Under the debtor's business judgment rule, and in the best interest of the debtor's bankruptcy estate, a debtor may assume its rights and obligations under a pre-petition contract, such as a bonded contract and the surety bonds required by the bonded contract, if the debtor believes that the profits from that pre-petition contract are a benefit to the debtor's estate. Those assumed rights and obligations become both the debtor's and the other contracting entities or the obligee's post-petition rights and obligations. They also create an obligee's administrative expense claim against the debtor for the actual necessary costs and expenses of preserving the debtor's estate. If the debtor defaults post-petition on its obligations to perform an assumed bonded contract and the surety is called upon to make payments under the assumed surety bonds, the surety may assert its subrogation to the rights of the obligee to a post-petition claim against the reorganized debtor. That is what happened in the American Southern case. The surety sought to recover losses that it incurred from the principal and other indemnitors resulting from the principal's defaults under two pre-petition subdivision bonds executed in July of 2005. In November 2009, the principal filed for a Chapter 11 bankruptcy and became a debtor. In September of 2010, the confirmed plan of reorganization under it, the debtor agreed to assume liability under the public works agreements secured by the subdivision bonds and the subdivision bonds themselves. But the debtor did not assume any liability under the surety's indemnity agreement. The bankruptcy discharged the debtor's liability to the surety under the indemnity agreement. Four years after the confirmation of the plan in November 2014, the obligee on the bonds notified the surety that the principal had defaulted on the public, under the public works agreements and the surety paid the obligee $500,000 under the subdivision bonds. The surety's initial complaint brought one claim against the principal and other indemnitors for contractual indemnity under the indemnity agreement. The surety then amended its complaint by removing the principal from the indemnity claim due to the discharge from the indemnity agreement reimbursement obligations under the plan, but added a claim against the principal for breach of the public works agreements. The surety asserted that it was subrogated to the rights of the obligee to assert the breach of the public works agreement claims. The principal moved to dismiss the complaint, arguing that the broad language in the indemnity agreement would include any claims that the surety had pursuant to its subrogation rights. Um, the court disagreed and held that when a bankruptcy court does not discharge the obligations that a principal owes to the obligee, because of the debtor's assumption of the bonded contracts and the bonds, the surety retains its subrogation rights to enforce the obligee's rights under the bonded contracts. There are two real takeaways from this case. First, when a debtor assumes an executory contract, it becomes a post-petition obligation of the reorganized debtor. If the debtor subsequently defaults and the surety pays under the bond securing that post-petition contractual obligation, the surety is subrogated to the rights of the obligee it paid and may assert the obligee's rights against the now reorganized debtor. Second, when the surety's indemnity rights are discharged, 
these surety may maintain its subrogation rights. As Mike said during last month's presentation, the surety can enforce both its indemnity agreement reimbursement rights and its subrogation rights to the obligee's rights in order to obtain a double recovery. However, when one of these, those rights disappears, as in this case with the indemnity agreement reimbursement rights, the surety that pays the obligee's claims under the bonds may fall back on its subrogation rights and assert the obligee's contractual claims against the reorganized debtors. Mike? Okay, thanks, George. So I'm going to discuss a series of cases that came out uh, last year in August, October, and December. Uh, they all dealt with the issue of, of impairing a payment bond claimant's Miller Act rights. Of course, we're all familiar with the Miller Act. The Act was intended to provide an alternative remedy to protect laborers and suppliers on federal projects because uh, those laborers and suppliers wouldn't have the traditional mechanics lien rights. And so the Act has been characterized as a highly remedial statute with, you know, which should be liberty, liberally construed and to effectuate its purpose. In 1999, Congress amended the Miller Act to add a new provision which stated that a waiver of the rights under the Miller Act to bring a claim against the payment bond is void unless, the waiver, unless one, the waiver is in writing, two, the waiver is signed by the person whose right is waived, and three, the waiver is executed after the person's right uh, that's being waived furnished the labor and materials. So courts have recognized that the purpose of the new provision was to prevent prime contractors from requiring subcontractors to waive their Miller Act rights as a precondition to obtaining work on federal projects. It's also been held that uh, any waiver of the Miller Act rights must be clear and explicit and cannot be implied. So I have three cases to discuss, and what I'll do is briefly go over the facts and the holding of each case and then talk about the basis for the holdings altogether because they were all uh, very similar, and, and one of the cases just pretty much relied on one of the other cases, so uh, we're going to treat them this way. So in, in U.S. for the use and benefit of Aeroelectric Solutions versus Continental Casualty Company, that's a case out of the District of Maryland, Aeroelectrical Solutions was a subcontractor to Grunley Construction, the prime contractor, on a project at the Social Security Administration complex in Maryland. Arrow contended that it was not paid in full for certain costs and expenses related to delays on the project. Accordingly, Arrow filed suit against uh, the Miller Act surety. Grunley moved to intervene and to stay the case. Grunley acknowledged that there were delays on the project and indeed had submitted a delay claim to the government, which included Arrow's alleged delay claim. The government had not rendered a final decision on the claim when the suit was filed. Accordingly, the motion to stay asked the court to stay the case pending the outcome of the claims process under the Contract Disputes Act. The court granted Mo um, Grunley's motion to intervene but denied the motion to stay. The next case is U.S. for the use and benefit of Kitchens to Go versus Grimberg. That was a case out of the Eastern District of Virginia. The subcontractor, Kitchens to Go, provided temporary kitchen facilities to the prime contractor, John C. Grimberg Company, on a project at the uh, FBI Academy in Quantico, Virginia. The project was delayed, and Kitchens to Go was required to maintain the temporary facilities at the project for almost an additional year beyond the time period set in the, con in the subcontract. Kitchens to Go asserted a claim for delay damages, and Grimberg included that claim in its own claim to the government. Eventually, Kitchens to Go filed suit against Grimberg and the surety under the Miller Act. 
Hitchens to go then moved for partial summary judgment as to the claim against the surety. <clears throat> the surety opposed the motion and moved to stay the case pending the outcome of the claim submitted to the government. The motion to stay was denied and the motion for partial summary judgment against the surety was granted in part, holding that the surety may not rely on the no damage for delay clause and that the claimant need not wait for completion of the dispute process. And it denied the motion for summary judgment in part on the grounds that additional discovery was needed as to the um, amount of damages. And the final case is U.S. for the use and benefit of American Combustion Industries, Inc. versus Hartford Accident and Indemnity Company. That's a case out of the Middle District of Pennsylvania. The subcontractor, American Combustion Industries, or ACI, was hired by John Grimberg, the prime contractor, to install new boilers and related equipment at a new central heating plant at a federal government project in Pennsylvania. ACI filed suit against the surety under the Miller Act seeking payment for certain change order and extra work performed. The parties agreed to a stay of the case and the stay was subsequently extended multiple times by consent for almost four years. The stay was agreed to while the parties were waiting for a decision from the government on a claim which included the subcontractor's change and extra work. The government ultimately denied the claim and Grimberg appealed the denial to the Armed Services Board of Contract Appeals, but it was only with respect to a portion of the ACI change work. The surety wanted to continue the stay, but ACI refused, so the surety filed a motion to continue the stay. The court denied the motion to stay. Now, in each of these cases, similar arguments were made by the surety or the prime contractor in support of staying the case or in uh, opposition to summary judgment. In each of the cases, the underlying subcontracts had similar contractual provisions, such as the no damage for delay clause and clauses that bound the subcontractor to the dispute resolution provisions of the, of the prime contract and bound the subcontractor to the outcome of those dispute resolution processes. So the position was taken in these cases by the surety or the prime contractor that the subcontractor's suit was premature because unless the claim process was completed, and the government paid the prime contractor, the subcontractor was owed nothing. There was no, you know, sums justly due, excuse me, as required under the Miller Act. So in each of these cases, the courts made the same conclusions of law, basically. The courts held that the surety is not entitled to enforce the subcontract's no damage for delay clause because the clause contravenes the Miller Act. Under their view, the Act conditions the right to assert a claim only on the passage of 90 days after the last labor or materials was provided, not after payment by the owner. In, the, in these courts' view, the 90-day provision can be the only condition to filing suit. It was noted that in Miller Act cases, courts must look beyond the principal's contractual liability to the Miller Act itself in defining the limits of the coextensive liability between the surety and the principal. In this regard, the Supreme Court has recognized that the surety's liability on a Miller Act bond must be at least coextensive with the obligations imposed by the Act if the bond is to have its intended effect. The Kitchens to Go Court noted further that the Miller Act trumps conflicting suretyship principles such that a surety can only enforce contract terms to limit its Miller Act liability if those terms are consistent with the Act. The Kitchens to Go Court also rejected the surety's argument that Congress did not intend to extend the liability of the surety beyond that of the principal. The three courts also noted that the no damages for delay clause was not a valid waiver of the Miller Act rights because the waiver occurred in the subcontract before any work was provided. 
Court stated that enforcement of the no damage for delay clause would frustrate the purpose of the Miller Act, which is to ensure that claimants who perform work are paid in the event the principal does not pay. The Kitchens to Go Court noted uh, a split among the lower courts that have addressed the no damage for delay clause issue, but stated that courts are uniform in finding analogous clauses like pay when paid or pay if paid to be unenforceable under the Miller Act. The courts agreed that the Miller Act conditions payment only on the passage of time. Clauses that condition payment on factors other than the passage of time, i.e. payment by the owner, uh, conflict with the Miller Act and are unenforceable. The courts rejected the surety's argument that the no damage for delay clause did not affect timing or right of recovery, but rather only the measure of recovery. It should be noted that this argument that was raised by the surety has been upheld by other courts. For the same reasons, the court rejected the surety's arguments that the subcontractor cannot assert a claim under the Miller Act under the, until the um, dispute process between the prime and the owner has been concluded. The court stated that the dispute resolution provision would insert an additional condition to payment under the Miller Act and the dispute process is, is not a valid waiver. In addition, the courts noted that the subcontractor did not have the right under the prime contract or the CDA, uh, the, the uh, Contract Disputes Act. In Kitchens to Go, the surety pointed to legislative history that stated that Congress did not intend to interfere with alternative methods for re resolving disputes, but the court dismissed that legislative history as applying only to contracts between the subcontractor and the prime and not between the prime contractor and the owner, apparently ignoring the whole incorporation by reference issue. So those are those three cases. George? My next case will address the surety subrogation rights to earn progress payments paid to the bank. It's the Berkeley versus Hawthorne Bank case. On March 13, 2017, Mike and I presented a Surety Today program entitled The Limitations on the Surety Subrogation Rights. One of those limitations may occur when the surety is competing with the principal's bank for earned progress payments that have been paid by an obligee or the principal directly to the bank. The question becomes whether the surety may assert any rights against the bank and get back the progress payments to reimburse the surety for its present or subsequent performance and or payment bond losses. The ultimate issue in each of these cases is whether the principal is in default under the bonded contract and whether at the time the bank receives the payment of the earned progress payment, the bank was aware of the principal's default. Remember, the bank has provided the principal with a loan or line of credit. The principal draws on the line of credit to pay its bills, whether on bonded contracts, non-bonded contracts, or for overhead and other administrative expenses. The balance on the line of credit is reduced by the bank's receipt of the payments of the contract funds deposited with the bank from bonded and non-bonded contracts. This is a normal course of business activity. In Berkeley versus Hawthorne, the bank had a perfected security interest in the principal's receivables, including bonded and non-bonded contract funds. The surety had not perfected its UCC security interest against the principal under the indemnity agreement. The surety incurred losses in excess of $2.5 million in paying for the completion of the work and resolving claims under the performance and payment bonds. Prior to that time, to satisfy some of the principal's unpaid loan debts due to the bank, the bank applied funds from the principal's accounts, including some progress payments received by the principal for its work on the bonded contracts. 
the surety sued the bank under six counts, conversion, tortious interference with business expectancy, equitable lien, constructive trust, implied indemnity, and unjust enrichment. The surety alleged that it was entitled to recover from the bank the amount of the bonded contract progress payments deposited into the principal's bank account and applied by the bank to the principal's loan debts. The critical timing was as follows, and this is important. The bank received and then applied the last bonded contract progress payments to the principal's loan debt on January 16, 2015. The bank only learned about the surety's indemnity agreement on perfected assignment rights and trust fund rights and the principal's defaults under the bonded contracts when it received notice from the surety on January 20, 2015, four days later. The surety paid its first bond loss on February 10, 2015. The court granted summary judgment in favor of the bank on all six counts. Now, these kinds of cases show the dilemma faced by a surety when the principal is in default and yet the obligees under the bonded contracts continue to pay the principal. The surety wants the obligees to pay, but only so long as the bonded contract funds are used to reduce the surety's exposure to loss under the bonds. The surety would like the bank to lend more money under the line of credit to the principal to keep the principal afloat. However, once the surety notifies the bank that the principal is in default under one or more of the bonded contracts, two results may occur. The bank will most likely cut off the principal's access to the line of credit, but the bank may now be on notice that any subsequent payments it receives of the bonded contract funds whether directly from an obligee or through the principal, are subject to the surety's subrogation rights. The court made a big deal out of the fact that the surety's subrogation rights arise only upon total satisfaction of the underlying obligation under the bonds, citing Section 27 of the Restatement of the Suretyship as requiring the surety's performance before the surety's subrogation rights become effective. The court ignored Section 31 of the Restatement of Suretyship that defines the surety's rights to return performance from the obligee upon the principal's default under the bonded contract, namely the payment of the bonded contract funds from the obligee to the surety. Section 31 also makes the bank claiming its rights through the, through the principal subordinate to the surety's subrogation rights in the bonded contract funds. Whether the obligees overpay the principal by paying the progress payments when the principal is in default under the bonded contracts may be a surety's issue, but it is, not, it is not the surety's issue with respect to the bank. If, as in this case, the bank had no actual knowledge of the principal's bonded contract defaults and received and then applied the last bonded contract progress payments to the principal's debts to the bank on January 16, Prior to such knowledge of the principal's defaults on January 20, the surety is highly unlikely to get those bonded contract progress payments back from the bank under any legal or equitable theory, including the six alleged in this case by the surety. Mike? Okay. The next case I want to talk about is In Ray Ward. It's a bankruptcy case from the Eastern District of Virginia. Uh, in this case, the court held a debtor's debt to the surety under an indemnity agreement was non-dischargeable in, a debtor, in the debtor's bankruptcy under 11 U.S.C. 523A4 of the Code. That provision provides that a debtor is not discharged from any debt for fraud or defalcation 
while acting in a fiduciary capacity, embezzlement, or larceny. I chose this case because in 2013, the Supreme Court in Bullock versus Bank Champaign um, issued an opinion that resolved a three-way split among the circuits and adopted a very restrictive standard for establishing non-dischargeability in fiduciary defalcation cases. The court's ruling in Bullock upset the long-standing standards that were applied in the vast majority of the jurisdictions. Non-dischargeability in, in fiduciary defalcation cases is important to sureties because often the principals and indemnitors have fiduciary obligations under probate or fiduciary bonds and as trustees of bonded contract funds that have become trust funds under the underlying contract, the GAI, or trust fund statutes. Denying a debtor a discharge for such debts can help with salvage. Ever since Bullock, the surety world has been struggling to define the parameters of the court's ruling so that we can know when to challenge dischargeability in a given case. Consequently, every decision that comes out in this area is another step on the road to coming to grips with that new standard. In Ward, the surety issued bonds for its principal and attorney that was an administrator and guardian of three separate estates. As the administrator and guardian, the principal owed a fiduciary duty to these estates. The principal failed to file proper accountings for the estates, failed to file tax returns for the estates, failed to respond to notices from the courts, moved offices several times, and failed to notify clients, uh, and also failed to provide forwarding addresses. As a result, the principal was removed as, as the administrator and guardian for the estates, and ultimately his license to practice law was suspended. Needless to say, the surety incurred losses on its bonds. The principal filed bankruptcy. The surety commenced an adversary proceeding against the principal, now the debtor, seeking the determination that the debtor's debt to the surety was non-dischargeable because of the defalcation while acting in fiduciary capacity. The Bankruptcy Code does not define the term de defalcation. The 4th, 8th, and 11th circuits held that under 523, defalcation occurred from a mere failure to meet a fiduciary obligation, whether through negligence or even an innocent mistake. The 5th, 6th, and 7th circuits developed a rule that defalcation under 523 required more than just negligence. There had to be some sort of willful conduct or neglect of duty, something that was short of fraud. The third position was established by the 1st and 2nd circuits, which held that defalcation required an intent to deceive the scienter element of fraud or extreme recklessness in order to satisfy the requirements of Section 523. In the Bullock case, the Supreme Court held that defalcation under 523 required conduct including bad faith, moral turpitude, or other immoral conduct or intentional wrongdoing, which includes not only conduct that the fiduciary knows is improper, but also reckless conduct. The Bullock Court defined reckless conduct as a conscious disregard of a substantial and unjustifiable risk that the conduct will turn out to violate the fiduciary duty. The Court stated that the reckless conduct must be a gross deviation from the standard of conduct that a law-abiding person would observe. In Ward, after a bench trial, the Court found that the surety established by a preponderance of the evidence that the debtor consciously disregarded the risk that his failures to act would breach his fiduciary duties. The court held the debt owed to the surety to be non-dischargeable. This was not the typical case where the fiduciary stole the money or misused the funds. It was a case of the reckless disregard variety. So the court found that the debtor had this known duty and utterly failed to satisfy that duty sufficiently to constitute the gross recklessness standard under Bullock. One of the interesting factors in the case, which the court mentioned in its ruling, was the fact that 
In one of the estates, the principal, prior to issuance of the bonds and accepting his role as a fiduciary, executed a fiduciary acknowledgement form, which stated that he had various fiduciary duties to the estate and that he understood that he could be held liable for violating those duties. Jason uh, Potter and I uh, discussed this non-dischargeability issue in September of 2016, Surety Today presentation, and we noted that to meet this new Bullock standard, you have to establish the intent, the willfulness, or the recklessness, which means you've got to establish you know, that the debtor knew what these obligations were and knew what the fiduciary duties were, uh, whether as an administrator, a guardian, or a trustee of trust funds. In the underwriting process, surety should require principals and indemnitors to acknowledge that they have these fiduciary obligations, such as what occurred in this case with that acknowledgement form. Then when those duties are breached, uh, non-dischargeability can more readily be established. In this case, the guy was an attorney, so I think the issue of, of knowledge of fiduciary duty was fairly clear. But in cases where the fiduciary is not an attorney, some effort is going to be required to establish that element and some advanced planning, you know, in, in the underwriting process could really go a long way for that. George? My final case will address the bonded contract funds as property, the debtor's bankruptcy estate, the uh, in-ray capital development and general contracting case. On December 11, 2017, Mike and I presented a Surety Today program entitled Bankruptcy, the Debtors and the Surety's Rights to the Bonded Contract Funds. We discussed the interest that the debtor and the surety have in the bonded contract funds, who gets possession of them, and who has the better rights to determine the use of the bonded contract funds. The surety frequently asserts that the debtor has no rights to the bonded contract funds under various theories, that they are not property of the debtor's estate, and that the surety is the owner of and should receive the bonded contract funds. In the following case, the bankruptcy court found that the bonded contract funds were property of the debtor's bankruptcy estate. In In Ray Capra, the debtor bonded principal and the surety disputed the ownership of the bonded contract funds that the government paid to the principal on a federal project. The surety had paid a payment bond claim on the project. The principal subsequently filed Chapter 11. Two months prior to the bankruptcy filing, the government made a payment of about $67,000 to the principal, and with the surety's consent, the funds were first deposited, in, in, deposited into the trust account of the attorney who represented the principal on contractual matters. Later, it was transferred to the debtor's attorney's trust account, and it altered, the money ultimately ended up in a restricted access debtor and possession account after the Chapter 11 was filed. The principal and the surety filed cross motions for summary judgment. The surety sought a judgment that the funds were not property of the bankruptcy estate and in order to pay the funds to the surety, the principal argued that the funds were property of the debtor's estate and the principal was free to use the funds as they were not subject to any subrogation claims of the surety. The court held that the consensus across the jurisdictions in this country was that property held by the attorney's client trust account is property of the client. It distinguished the Perlman line of cases, noting that in Perlman the funds were not in the possession of the debtor. Nevertheless, the court also held that whether the funds were property of the estate had no bearing on whether the surety was entitled to the funds. The court granted summary judgment in favor of the principal on the issue of whether the funds were property of the estate. It denied the principal summary judgment 
on the issue of the surety's rights to the funds or whether the principal could use the funds. The court stated it is for the bankruptcy court to sort out competing property interests and that the surety would have its day in court to argue its rights to the funds. There are three takeaways from this case. First, unless the principal has been effectively terminated from its performance of a bonded contract, most bankruptcy courts will find that the debtor may have some kind of an interest in the bonded contract funds, regardless of the surety's rights. Second, as we discussed on December 11, most bankruptcy courts will at some point provide the surety with some adequate protection and control over the debtor's use of the bonded contract funds, to ensure that the bonded contract funds are applied to the payment of obligations for which the surety would otherwise be liable under its bonds. The, transfer, the transcript for the December 11 program sets out examples of such adequate protection and control. Third, the facts of the Kapler case merely state that the contract funds are being held in various attorney trust accounts with the surety's permission and that no escrow agreement was signed. Later, the funds were placed in the restricted access debtor and possession account. The lack of paperwork describing why and under what circumstances the funds were held in those various accounts and the rights of the principal and the surety to use those funds is very common, unfortunately. But document documentation describing the circumstances and rights, whether it's a formal escrow agreement, a letter agreement, or even an email, would help. Mike? Okay, sorry everybody, it looks like we've run over a little bit. Uh, before I open up the line for any questions, I wanted to let everyone know the next edition of Surety Today will be on Monday, March 12, 2018 at 12.30 uh, Eastern Time. George Backrack and I will present the Surety versus the Internal Revenue Service. Events in the surety industry, the Atlanta Surety Claims Lunch will be February 21st, the Philadelphia Surety Claims Lunch will be February 28th, and the Chicago Lunch will be March 1st. So let's see, we'll uh, unmute the line here. Hello. 